0: True Crime on Red Alert. Right along with host Bianca Crespo and former FBI agents Ray Carr and James R. Fitzgerald for an intimate perspective on gripping high-profile cases, this is Cold Red.
1: So my name is Bianca Crespo. I'm a producer at Santa Mira studio. And thank you for joining me for Cold Red. I am joined by... Ray Carr, who has worked on an incredible case that spanned over a 30-year manhunt for one of the most notorious bank robbers in history in Pennsylvania. I am also joined by uh, Fitzgerald, James R. Fitzgerald, who worked on the incredible Unabomber case. He's responsible for also working tirelessly to catch that man. And he worked on the John D. Ramsey case and numerous cases across the entire country. And I think it's wonderful that we're discussing certain crimes today. And I look forward to joining you joining us for this intense conversation. It's wonderful to essentially have that kind of commentary that I don't, depending on who is watching these news outlets and, and you know gaining that kind of insight and information from someone who's very experienced and with a background such as yourself, I think it's very important to have um, and that also brings me to, you know, Ray, you have been making the media rounds as well regarding the case in Massachusetts um, with the real estate executive, I believe, correct?
2: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, but uh, I have to thank Jim for that. Uh, Jim was, is not an early riser, and uh, at Fox and Friends in the morning, uh, they uh, wanted me to come on at 5.30, uh, 20 of 6, in the morning or no I'm sorry it was more like uh, 20 of 7 in the morning 640 and uh, so I did and uh, we we talked about uh, uh, we talked about some of the things that were going on in that case at the time and I remember uh, Steve Ducey saying to me uh, what do you think about the $450 that he spent at Home Depot on cleaning supplies And I kind of said to him, I said, well, Steve, when's the last time you spent $450 on cleaning supplies? And he said, never. And I said, you're right. So he asked me what my outlook was for it. And I says, uh, I anticipate uh, that Brian Walsh is going to be arrested very shortly and charged with the murder of Anna Walsh. And uh, a week later, Brian Walsh was arrested and charged. Uh, So uh, that seemed to come through. And I haven't spoke to anybody since then about that, but uh, I think the the things that are going on now with that case is that uh, there's discovery, and it's mostly a circumstantial case because of the fact that there's uh, uh, Anna Walsh has, has never been found, and the prosecutor believes that she was dismembered and put in plastic bags and put in a dumpster that was eventually incinerated. So, but uh, there is, uh, at times, uh, some great success with uh, prosecutions where uh, the victim is never found, and there is a lot of success with those. But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that uh, is seated here, and there's quite a bit of that in this case, which I don't think is gonna bode well for Mr. Walsh.
1: Absolutely. I feel like there has been a lot of interesting cases recently regarding this kind of behavior where you have this picture perfect seemingly picture perfect uh couple family what have you they seem to have it all and then this kind of incident happens and it's similar to the dr jeffrey mcdonald case the murdoch murders where you have these people who are very in positions of power i would say in some aspect and they have a certain lifestyle that seems very stepford wifeish in that sense, where it's nice, but that's the outside perception. And then when these things occur, it seems like there's a lot more going on beneath the surface. So I would love to know your ex, in, regarding your experience with, let's say, these particular cases. You can touch on either one, dependent on if you're comfortable speaking regarding that but I feel like this kind of sociopathic behavior is very dominant in these kinds of cases. Um, So I would love to know your thoughts regarding this kind of personality.
0: Let me start with following up Bianca on, on something you just said, and that is as a relatively young police officer, I was drafted to work in the detective division at Ben Salem PD. I was only a cop for about a year and a half and uh, there was a a homicide case uh, that we were working and then of course i became a detective i was promoted and worked more and what i found out is um, uh, still water runs deep and uh, not so much young kids or something like that Uh, maybe you were in teenagers they're pretty much out there and they do what they do but um but for you know married couples and men and women if they're homicide victims uh, there's a lot we can find out about them through an investigation. And in these early days with me, the 70s, the 80s, and even early cases in the FBI, it's well before social media. So this type of information would come about maybe through you know some basic phone records, uh, and even those weren't that involved back then. Ray, you can remember, sometimes all you get was the phone numbers. You do all kinds of searches on who they belong to, and then you find out who's having interactions with whom, and and take it from there and some sometimes phone calls are made from a phone booth well g, why or received from a phone booth why would that happen and invariably there'd be maybe some hint or suggestion of an affair or some illicit uh spending of money for whatever reason and sometimes as it turns out it had nothing to do with the homicide the homicide occurred for for completely different reasons so um so it is interesting and uh, and, and when you break down someone's life there could be questions that we all have about them, uh, about these individual people, especially homicide victims, homicide suspects, and what those clues are found to be may play a, a direct role in the, uh, in the commission of the crime, maybe an indirect role, uh, sometimes nothing at all to do with it. So it's interesting how all that plays out. So uh, I'm not saying everyone has skeletons in their closet because they don't, but they may have little tiny bone chips that if someone's going to deep dive into, their personal life uh, through now social media, phone records, things like that, it it it, it could raise some questions in terms of uh, of uh, you know where do the investigators go next and where do they focus in the, in that regard. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of you know psychopathy going on in some of these cases we talked about, and um, and by the way, my policy has been for years doing media interviews. Um, I don't I don't put I don't verbalize the names. Of mass killers or serial killers, and I'm going to stick with that in cold red here. Um, if others want to say it, that's fine. You know, individual killers like Murdaugh and, and people like that, we can reference. You know, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy, or at least he was part of the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. I certainly have no problems with names like that. But there are some other people, uh, including a case we're going to talk about a little bit later, just happened today in Nashville. I prefer not to give those people any sort of legitimacy by using their names whether they change their names recently first name last name whatever they have nicknames so that's going to be me and my particular policy in that regard on this show uh, even Megan Kelly asked me about my policy uh, uh, back in January when she interviewed me and she said that's not a- No it's I
1: think it's I think it's perfect for what we are trying to do with this podcast we've spoken previously with our pilot episode regarding this nature this policy that you have and I think it's a good one in the sense that we are about the victims and we're about educating and enlightening people to prevent this kind of crime from occurring or preventing future victims. So I think it's very important that we stick to that and not give so-and-so any more celebrity or any kind of notoriety, anything because they don't deserve it. And I mean, anyone who should be in the light should be these, these poor people who suffered at the hands of, These personalities, and that being said, let me dive a little bit deeper in terms of uh, a case that I touched upon regarding Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, um, who was at Fort Bragg, and I believe you're familiar with this case. 1970, he um, brutally murdered his his uh, his wife and his two daughters. And again, this is a known case, so I just say the name just. For the sake of it being a known case. Um, but I would love to get your analysis regarding what led to something so horrible and what you two think um, is very important in that kind of case moving forward with what we're going to talk about later on.
2: Let me start out with this and, and you've mentioned four cases here. The Idaho murders, uh, the Anna Walsh homicide, the Murdoch murders and the Jeffrey McDonald murder. And the one common thread here in all four of these is the fact that each of these offenders thought they were smarter than law enforcement. They thought that they could outthink law enforcement as in the Anna Walsh case, as in the Idaho murders, uh, you know, shutting off your phone so they couldn't determine your location and then turning it back on when you get out of the area. And then you look at McDonald who was a medical doctor who thought, I'm a smart guy, and went to Princeton. I'm a bright, bright guy. And then you look at Murdoch, who was, uh, his family was a mainstay in the southern part of South Carolina for a 100 years. He could kind of do what he wanted to do. Uh, He had everybody, supposedly, he thought, in his back pocket. And then all of a sudden, that kind of changed a little bit. But the one thing that is different between the McDonald uh, murders and the Murdoch murders is that I see, and Jim, you can comment to this, is there was overkill in the McDonald murders. Whereas, and what I mean by that is that the number of stab wounds that each of the victims, his two children and his wife, was astronomical. Uh, There were 30 or 40 stab wounds in each victim and bludging of that. Where in the Murdoch case, he shot his wife and shot his son with a shotgun. And it was over that quick. So it was just... It was almost like for Murdoch it was business. McDonald was trying to set a point and he used the Manson murders uh, as a kind of a stepping stone for himself with that. But I get that's kind of where I look at that and, and it kind of where it starts for me when you're trying to look at these type of offenders and what they're doing. But, and you said this earlier, Bianca, and so did Jim, is that we always get so caught up in the offender's behavior that we lose sight of the victim. And uh, I know that's something on cold red here that we really wanna really kind of uh, gravitate towards is, hey, let's not forget about the victims here. And when you look at Anna Walsh and you look at uh, Brian Walsh, you have two parents that are gone. One's in prison and one, one is dead and they have three children. And nobody thinks about them, nobody talks about them. They're, they're an afterthought. You look at Idaho and you look at the four victims that were killed there, but nobody thinks about their families and the wound that will never be healed, you know? Uh, so you look at that, you look at McDonald and you look at the, the parents and most of the people in that case, in the McDonald case, are now dead. Um, the prosecutor, the judge, uh, the, uh, the in-laws, uh, most of those people are gone. And in the Murdoch case, it's I don't think that's over yet there's several homicides that are tied to that family. the boating accident, which was his uh, son Paul who was killed. Uh, then you have the, the young man that was found in the road. Uh, and then you have the housekeeper who fell down a, a flight of steps he and, fell. and yeah. correct. So I mean there's some there's some questions on that are still going on here, you know uh, but uh, I think there's a lot to be said but we can't lose sight of the victim.
1: not at all. And it's, I think it's important, as we spoke about previously, and that being said, with these cases, is there something we need to know about regarding these victims in particular for these cases? Is, is there anything that kind of would educate others in regards to certain behaviors um, that would help those who listen to this podcast in terms of moving forward with their own lives and being careful
0: well, we um, profilers came up with a term a long time ago and that is victimology. It's very important to us as we are, in fact, uh, investigating a, a crime or series of crimes to know everything we can about the victim. I referenced this a little bit earlier, even in my early days as a police officer with uh, phone records and, and you know, neighborhood interviews, things like that. But, but certainly we want to know all that we can about um, the victims. And what caused them to become a, uh, a, a target of a violent offender. Uh, obviously, if it's a domestic situation like Murdaugh and you know a wife and a child, uh, th- there may be a whole lot of behavioral history behind them, but when it's sort of a, a stranger homicide uh, or not someone directly linked to the victim or the family, which about 80 percent of homicides are, you know, they're, they're committed by someone known to uh, the victim, uh, this changes the paradigm a bit so that's why we want to know everything we can about the victim uh, of these types of crimes and then um, and then do our best and and we'll try to do this on cold red uh, but to do our best to you know talk to people men women younger people boys girls let them know in fact there are ways to avoid becoming a crime victim a crime statistic and um, no one's 100% safe all the time. But, um, but you can certainly uh, uh, lessen the odds of, of, of becoming victimized yourself, either from you know car theft or, or carjacking, or certainly much worse than that sexual assault to include uh, upwards uh, towards the area, you know even homicide. So these are all types of things we're hoping to get across on this particular show this evening, um, and, and as we go along with cold red. But, um, but going back to Jeffrey McDonald and Murdaugh, and, Murdon, and I, Ray brought up a few common uh, factors there, uh, perhaps between them. The first thing that struck me, I read Fatal Vision years ago. Uh, uh, Joe McGuinness, I think, was the author of that. And they made, there was a TV movie made about it. And, um, and uh, I'm certainly familiar with the Murdaugh case. But both of these two men, both of these uh, now convicted killers, um, the one thing they have in common is great hubris they feel they can talk and get away with anything they want and they think they're smarter than the average bear certainly do include the police as ray said earlier and um, and uh, and 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 that's what in fact tripped them up in the long run jeffrey mcdonald was going out doing tv talk shows uh uh referencing the homicides of his of his wife and his two children and it was his father-in-law in fact that's watching him on Merv Griffin or uh, some of these other shows back in the 70s and early 80s and wait a minute he didn't tell me that you know the week of the murder wait a minute he, he said something else three months later and it was finally the father-in-law who went to I believe was the uh, uh the uh the state police and 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 uh or, or the army investigators I should say and put this whole case together so um so good for the father-in-law sticking with it, and. Um, So yeah, the and and I see even Murdoch, he took the stand in his own defense at his at his double homicide trial. Not everyone does that either, but he was a lawyer. He cross-examined many people over the days, uh, over his career. He had uh, supposedly he was known for his closing arguments when he was defending someone. So he thought he could give a great closing argument uh, uh, while testifying, which of course everyone knows. We're protected from self-incrimination in this country under the U.S. Constitution. We don't have to testify against ourselves, provide evidence against ourselves in any sort of a criminal uh, uh, type of procedure. But he said, I'm going to go and do it. I can can get my story across to these jury members. But what was it, like an hour, maybe 90 minutes at most that the jury came back and said, sorry, you're convicted, both counts of homicide. So again, the hubris on this guy's part just caught up with him eventually. And now he's exactly where he should be, uh, in prison, and he's going to wind up dying there too, just like Jeffrey McDonald.
2: Let me swing back, Bianca, a minute what Jim said when he talks about victimology. And you say, how can people prevent themselves from becoming the victim of a crime? Well, one of the things that we, and Jim knows this too, one of the things we talk about is a thing called target hardening. And what we say is that how can we, help better prepare ourselves not to be the victim of a crime. In other words, a lot of times people are specifically selected, and sometimes there's nothing you can do. Uh, You're going to be a victim no matter what. But there's so many things that you can do. For instance, uh, locking your car at night that's in your driveway, coming out of the mall and walking the parking lot, being aware of your surroundings, your situational awareness. Um, You have a home, and you have a beautiful home, and because it costs so much for the mortgage, I don't want to turn the outside lights on. Because if I do, I turn those outside lights on, it's going to cost. It's going to make, make my electric bill go up. But what you're doing is you're creating an atmosphere that is going to make it an easier target for someone to burglarize or to make entry into, into your home. You know, bushes up around your home, things of that nature. There's so many things that you can do. Like, for instance, why go to a movie? Uh, at 11 o'clock that brings you out at 1 o'clock in the morning. You know, a lot of times what people become victims of crime is because there's a lack of guardianship. There's not enough people around. That's why it's always saying, hey, if if a cop pulls you over, make sure you pull into a well-lit area, well-populated area, because then something bad is less likely to happen to you. So just a couple little things like that. And And we can talk, we'll talk more about that as we continue through as we continue through this.
1: You bring up a good point though, regarding that idea of being less likely uh, labeled as prey to these predators and putting yourself in these situations where something bad could happen. And I feel like going back to what you said, fits regarding the personality of this kind of like overcompensation, um, talking the big talk, you know, that predator kind of uh, aspect, that alpha kind of male um, where I'm smarter than you, you know, I'm the best. Um, I'm curious in terms of that, examining that that kind of person, um, have you too had cases that you've worked on previously that are specific in that nature where you have this male this character who is very much oh i planned everything out to a t i was meticulous they'll never catch me um do you find that you there are many cases like this um is that like represent essentially your, a lot of your history working with different cases or would you say that it's a small percentage
0: most serial offenders bianca think that way now, if they're drug-addled, if they're junkies, that changes the paradigm. They're going to, you know, you can almost predict when they're going to rob the bank next based on how much heroin they need to shoot in their arms and what the street cost is for that day. But um, what's sort of an, an irony to my particular training as a profiler in terms of what we're talking about here, um, we were sent out to the prisons in Virginia to interview sexual assault offenders who basically were in there for life. They weren't doing anything uh, to get out. I mean, they were there for life. And I remember talking to one of them saying uh, not only did he enjoy raping women, but uh, he remembers watching TV one night, some sort of a crime stopper show. There was some police officer, local officer talking to uh, a, a crowd somewhere saying, well, women, here's what you got to do. And a lot of things that Ray already said, all common sense things, which, of course, I, I, I agree with. But they also said, well, women, you know, take some self-defense courses and learn how to protect yourself and and defensive tactics to get away from someone and parry a blow and all these type things if someone's trying to strike you. Well, this guy heard this, this serial rapist, and he would sit outside a karate studio when it was women's night and would watch them through the plate glass window in their white, you know, uh, outfits and, you know, uh, with their various colored belts and they would be practicing defending themselves and uh, on on at least two occasions he followed these women away from that uh, structure that uh, that that strip mall and he somehow managed to pull them over or confront them somewhere far away and he sexually assaulted them even went after a female police officer once the same guy because she represented arrest power she carried a gun he actually somehow found out he followed her home from work Then followed her doing something else a day or two later when she was off duty, and wound up uh, not only uh, assaulting her but taking her gun from her. And uh, luckily, these people lived. But uh, and eventually, of course, the evidence came about that he was, uh, and he was arrested and convicted. But we're looking here at at individuals like these. You know, we can be alpha males or alpha females. That's okay. There's 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 a societally permissible way. To, to, to fit into those personas and in fact be successful in whatever chosen field uh, you're in. But sometimes that can uh, um, bleed over into the area of psychopathy and we have someone who would in fact be a psychopath. And, um, and the guy I just described who sat outside the karate um, um, facilities, he definitely fit the category of psychopath. He had some other psychological issues too. And, and these are the people that, of course, can be very dangerous. Uh, these are the people that have uh, no emotional um, feelings for others. They could care less about others. They're narcissistic. Um, they don't care what you say or do. It's all about what they want at that given time. So they're the ones that are, of course, more difficult to um, um, understand their motivations because it may not be greed. It may not be money. It may not even be sex, per se. It's more about power and control and, and, and uh, negating the very existence of someone if they're going to kill them. So, um, these are the kind of people that, yeah, we in the law enforcement community, we as profilers, we as FBI agents and detectives at the local level, these are the kind of people that we go up against. And we're the kind of people, yeah, they do think they're smarter than us. But even Ted Kaczynski, as high as his um, IQ was, a.k.a. the Unabomber, of course. Uh, he was eventually brought down, you could say too, by his own hubris when he started writing to the New York Times, his paper of record and giving us enough clues, linguistically, that he had never given before on his bombs or anything else that wound up uh, leading to his identification and arrest. So uh, so um, yeah, criminals commit crimes for different reasons. and um, But sometimes there are these core behavioral elements about them that, given the right time, the right breaks, and the right experience on the part of the investigators, they can be identified, arrested, and convicted.
2: Bianca, I've never heard an offender say, you know, I can't wait to commit this crime so I can get caught. The whole purpose of committing a crime is making sure you don't get caught. Otherwise, there's no sense in committing it. They're all looking for a way to do that. And what we identify that is their modus operandi, and their mo, which people call their mo, and how they do it. And they get they continue to perfect their method and means of how they do things, based upon their experience, based upon their educational level of doing it over and over again, looking to do it the best way they can, so they don't get caught.
1: It's very it's fascinating to me regarding that what you both. Brought up so excellently in terms of this power and control, and how it also brings about this, you know, this mischievous nature of, you know, not wanting to get caught. They won't catch me. Like there's some sort of lore to that as well, and that would bring me to, of course, this horrendous news that was has been breaking today. Um, with the shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, and it happened at an elementary school. I don't want to speculate. I'm just looking over the facts here to make sure everything is correct. Um, And I know we had discussed, like you brought up, Fitz, this issue with celebrity and saying the name and everything. And I have a question for you, too, regarding this kind of celebrity nature. Do you believe that these shootings that keep happening is partially due to this want to become this kind of celebrity. Is do you think there is a tiny portion of these events occurring because there is that kind of nature in whoever commits this kind of crime?
2: I think it's that's maybe one of the reasons, but you know, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. People don't wake up in the morning and go, uh, "Yeah, today is." Uh, March 27th, I think, today I'm going to become a mass murderer. People don't wake up and do that. There's a, there's a process they go through, a pathway, you might say, to violence. And it, it kind of, and usually for the offender, but usually on the back end, is that they get help by the system, by the school. There's usually a breakdown in the security system somewhere that allowed this to happen. But we're not going to go in there because I don't know what that breakdown is. And I really don't know what this person's pathway, but there was a grievance that this individual had, uh, and I don't know what that grievance is. We may never know what that grievance is because that person is no longer with us, but that grievance formulates into an ideation. Now, they get an idea of what they want to do, and from from an idea, they then get into the research and planning. And when they're in that research phase and they're in that planning phase, they're looking at past shootings and how we're some of these other individuals successful in accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. And they may use some of those things as a stepping stone or a learning piece, because many times these offenders only get one shot at this. Because you look and you think and you say, the average time for one of these things, to they, they last, it lasts about four to five minutes. And the average response time to these instances by law enforcement is four to five minutes. Now that doesn't mean they engaged, but today, from what I heard on news reports, within 15 minutes, 14 minutes, law enforcement engaged the shooter and eliminated eliminated the the threat. But once they, and that's I think, for them to do that, the alkaloids, you know, how many lives did they save? It's just amazing. But you look and you and you say when you think about these individuals engaging in violence with a weapon. And how hard is it to pull a trigger and shoot somebody? And how long does that take? And when you look at most instances that happen between a police officer and an offender, those things are over in 2.1 seconds where somebody is down or somebody is shot or both people are shot. So imagine you're engaging someone that doesn't have a weapon like little kids, teachers. And you cut that time in half. So imagine the, the number of people that could have been hurt more seriously or even killed had law enforcement not engaged them. But once they get through that, go back to the pathway, once they get through that research and planning, then they get into the preparation aspect where they'll purchase weapons, purchase, purchase ammunitions, maybe do some dry runs, things of that nature. Then they get to their point of no return, whatever that may be and then it's, then, then it's the attack and but that all takes time like I said it doesn't happen in a day uh, I mean looking at some of these things and having done my doctoral study on active shooters you know a lot of these things I think the, the, the quickest I've seen happen is about two weeks and that was the one out in Arizona at the, um, at the pathway where uh, Congresswoman Gabby Gifford was shot so I mean when you look at that it, it kind of that's how things kind of manifest with these individuals. But I agree with Jim. You know, we should never glorify these or allow these people to uh, give them that infamy that they may be seeking. Uh, but I don't know what this person's issue was. We, I know based from the uh, information that was received that she was a former student. Uh, but, you know, that was many, many years ago. Um, so I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe when they look into uh, the computer and they look into her emails and her phone, phone messages and other things, they, they may be able to find things. And the other thing that, uh, and I know uh, it's already been brought out, but she was a transgender and, um, you know, transitioning into a, a man. It's very, very rare to see uh, a female engaged in this type of behavior. It it happens, but it's a lot rarer than uh, a white male.
1: It is. That's what I believe was the most shocking for me because it is typically a male. And the fact that it was a young, a 28-year-old female who committed this horrific crime on children is hard to wrap my head around. And yes of course as well. so
0: what there's a few things here i, I believe the police uh, the investigators will have some advantage in that my understanding is the uh, uh this person had a manifesto of some sort just like the former la cop um i don't say his name either uh, back in 2013 he had a manifesto uh, the serial bomber in austin texas in 2018 he had a manifesto that was never released i did read some of the former police officers Writings back at the time. Of course, the Unabomber had his manifesto. Uh, so, this shooter from today in Nashville will have uh, that manifesto. I'm not sure if it's online, if it's public, or if that's something that's, uh, you know, ha- handwritten, whatever, that only the police will have access to. But there will be a wealth of information in there. And they will, uh, the investigators will also do, besides that, or in conjunction with that, a psychological autopsy. And of course, there'll be a physical autopsy of the body. They're going to determine manner of death, cause of death. What was the blood tox uh, in there? And yeah, going through transitions such as this, what kind of chemicals was she on? Was she on testosterone? And was the level in- appropriate to her body size and weight and all that? Could that have caused some things to happen? Uh, that, that, that certainly shouldn't have today. These are all issues to be discussed down the line. And no one here is making any political statements about this at all we're looking at this strictly from a violent crime perspective this person had a homicidal ideation probably a suicidal ideation i can't imagine the person they really thought they were going to survive this uh action today they apparently had no body armor on so uh and only you know so much ammunition uh, two long rifles and, and a handgun so uh, but but i and i do want to just follow up with what ray said uh the officers in Uvalde, Texas back in June of last year took a lot of heat and I believe deservedly so for not acting uh, more proactively to end that situation. These Nashville officers apparently within, they get the call within minutes they're there, they're in engaging the shooter over and done with. Unfortunately, six people dead, I'm not sure what the injury count is, but um, too many dead and of course it could have been much worse. So. Hats off to these heroes. People love to abuse the cops, cut their budgets, defund them, you know, um, and all these slogans that uh, when protesters are out there throwing bottles at them. But uh, when your school's being shut up, when your office is being shut up, it's not those protesters are going to come and and, uh, and rescue you. It's going to be the police officer. And I think if you, as you listen to Cold Red, Ray and I have both been involved in the arrest of police officers, arrest of FBI agents. If they're dirty, if they're bad, we're going to say it that includes in the past that includes present time but on the whole i think the law enforcement community in this country does an excellent job with the with the limited resources they have and a lot of the negative um reportage from today's media and other people on uh, on social uh on, on social media so um, despite that they're doing a heck of a job and i hope you know the recruiting of, of, of good potential officers and agents keeps going on and we keep getting uh, quality folks to uh, to uh, to do the job for us there
2: Bianca let me add one more thing to what Jim's to what Jim was going there is that a lot of times there's always uh, a question is how could this have been prevented and uh, it's the guns and it's the problem with the guns we need better gun laws and you know what to a point, I agree that we need to have stronger gun laws to make sure that the people that are buying these weapons are people that are people that should have them. But here's, here's the issue, is that there's always warning signs with this type of behavior. When we talked about that pathway to violence, in that there's time because they have to plan, they have to research. And in that time, they're exuding with a thing we call leakage where they leak behavior that other people notice, but dismiss. So if people are wondering, how can law enforcement better help us solve this problem? Stop looking to law enforcement and start looking at yourself. How can you make this better? You want to make this better? It's not politicians. Government most of the time is the problem, not the solution. It's us as a people the more aware we are of what's going around, the more aware that we see these things, and if we act on these things. you know, People say, well, law enforcement doesn't do their job. Law enforcement can't be everywhere. Law enforcement can only act on information that they have. So if you give them the information, they're gonna react to it, and they're gonna do a great job in doing it, just like you saw today. But give them the opportunity to do that job before something like this happens. That if you see behavior that you think is not quite right, then say something to somebody. Tell law enforcement. Let them know. And then you won't have to worry about that short window of four to five minutes, uh, you know, when this thing begins and ends. And law enforcement doesn't get there until most of the time it's over. Let law enforcement do their job. But you need to help them do it. We need to take control.
1: Absolutely. I think we need to work together. And I feel like it starts at taking accountability for actions. And if, you know, like we talked about situational awareness and making sure that you're prepared and you're aware, I think it's highly important because you can't, you can, everyone can point the finger. Anyone can point the finger. But looking at yourself, that's one thing, you know, you need to take into account.
0: As a follow-up to what Ray said, the media have to take some responsibility here, too, as well as our elected officials. It seems within sometimes minutes of one of these shootings, politics, politicians and you know, D-listers, celebrities are out there tweeting away that uh, you know, it, it's strictly the NRA's fault, or it's strictly the, uh, you know, the, the Republicans' fault, or some other you know, political party's fault, whatever, or some president's or governor's fault. No, the person who pulled the trigger, it's their fault. That's the one who should be blamed. That's the one who should be ostracized from the very beginning. If they want to say their names up front, that's fine. I choose not to say their names, but let's put it out there. What total um, (laughs) reprobates these people are to choose this sort of modality, this sort of action to, to address their grievances. And that's what this was. This this person was, we're going to find out, a grievance collector of some sort. This person had felt victimized by many aspects of their life and uh, going probably back to this school. They're going to trace back something in those school days. I know, I think it was the principal. I'm not sure what her official title was. 60 years old, 60 years of age. I wonder if she was actually a teacher there when this shooter attended that school. And perhaps that was the primary target today we're going to find out who was the primary target. maybe the kids were I hate to just use this term, but collateral damage to this person, but of course they make their argument even better then but also besides the principal killing a janitor and I think a substitute teacher probably just happened to be in the school that day, and of course, worst of all the nine the, the, I think they were all nine year old nine years old the kids so um, so the bad people in these shooting incidents. You know, we can address political issues and and gun control and all that. And of course, there's some way, including with Hollywood and what they depict in the movies, even the commercials for movies and the posters for movies that you see on on Netflix or or any other types of channels. And they just have to be a little more careful about that, that, you know, maybe glorifying some of these weapons is not always the best thing. The other part of it is I always feel when I do media hits and of course, now we have our own podcast here that. Criminals or future criminals are watching us or listening to us. And I always want to be very conscious and very cautious in, of course, what is said, you know, what what any of us would be saying on a certain program such as this. So I just, if there's anyone out there that has this sort of ideation, please, uh, you know, temper it. Talk to loved ones, talk to, uh, you know, family members, talk to professional therapists you know, and and let's try to get this matter handled. Shooting people, killing people is not the answer. I guarantee you it's not going to solve your problems, and either you're going to be in jail for the rest of your life, you're going to wind up dead yourself, and there's so many other ways to address what issues are going on in your life that it doesn't have to be taking uh, killing killing other innocent people.
2: Let's invite them on this show. Let's invite them on this show. You want someone to talk to? Let them come and talk Talk to you, I, and Bianca. Come yeah. and talk to us. We'll we'll air it out. We'll listen. Air it out. Exactly right. You'll feel a lot better. It'll
1: be a festivus, you will know, be an airing of the grievances. That's a Seinfeld it's...
2: issue. Festivus, right? Yeah. yeah. I picked that up, Bianca. <laughs> okay.
1: But no, in, since but honestly, in this area, I firmly believe that there needs a lot of talking and less shooting. There needs to be some kind of discussion that needs to unfold before anything needs to come to such a horrific event. And that being said, I know we're running out of time here, but I would really love to end um, with a moment of silence. But before we even get to that, I would really like to thank you both for taking the time to really provide us with more insight into this crazy world that we live in, continue to live in, and at least enlightening anyone who's listening to this podcast and making them feel maybe not safer, but at least a little more aware and prepared for the next day and tomorrow. So I feel like right now, if you two um, don't have any last words, um, you would, I would love to end with a moment of silence for the victims of the Murdoch murders, as well as the McDonald murders. And finally, the most recent shooting that occurred today at the, let me pronounce this correctly, the Covenant School, Private Christian Elementary School in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but do you two have any final words before we get to that? Yes, and the Idaho murders as well, in Massachusetts. Okay, so a moment of silence for all the victims of these crimes. Thank you, too, once again for joining me for another episode of Cold Red, and I really appreciate everything you've had to say on this very tragic day, I'd like to say, but again, because we're trying to do something to benefit all of our listeners, I feel like it's very important that we have these conversations and discussions and perhaps even open it up to anyone who is struggling with any kind of demons or anything that they're battling and hopefully prevent future crimes from happening. Um, But until next time, this is Bianca Crespo, Fitz and Ray for Cold Red. Um, Thank you for joining us and see you next time.